death penalty, living together, tattoos, and tithing. What do these subjects have in common? Hmm, give up. They are some of the more popular questions we've received at the BibleQuestions.org website over the years. Interested in the answers? Then stay with us on today's podcast addressing popular questions about the Bible. Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Brian, and along with Jeff, we are the hosts of this program. Hello, and welcome to the Bible Questions podcast. My name is Jeff. Along with me is our co-host, Brian. And today we're going to tee up some interesting questions from a variety of different topics. Brian? Yeah, this is always kind of a fun one to do. We've done a couple of these in the past, and you know, we do have a, a section on our website where you can find popular questions. And for those of you that might be relatively new to our podcast, you know, we've been answering Bible questions that have been submitted to our website at BibleQuestions.org for over 20 years. And Jeff, I think we're somewhere north of like a thousand questions, right, that uh, we have on the site. And that's just a portion of the several thousand that have been answered over 20 years, right? Yeah, exactly. You have lots of material and, and a very diverse uh, range of topics, as you might infer, given the fact that uh, the number of years that the website's been active, as well as its global reach through the internet. Yeah, and, and so there's a good chance if you have a Bible question that, uh, you know, you can find it on our website. So once you get to our landing page at BibleQuestions.org, you'll notice there are several sections, uh, but one is an alphabetical index that is on the homepage. And you can, you know, if you're looking for, let's say, you know, questions that have been answered or even articles that have been written on baptism, for instance, well, you can just select the letter B and there's a good chance you're going to find what you're looking for. But we also have an ask a question button where you're welcome to submit a question. And then uh, Jeff administers that. He will get that out to one of our uh, men who answer these questions. And within a few days, you'll have a biblically based answer. And we also have a section that you'll see uh, on our site called Popular. And so Jeff's done a good job of grouping, and I think it's somewhere between 40 and 50. The last time I counted, uh, you know, popular questions that are often submitted, you know, once again, the most popular. And so what we're going to do in this episode is, is we are going to take a look at some of those popular questions. And so, Jeff, why don't we dive right in and I'll ask you the first one. Okay. So the first one is on the death penalty. And so one common question that we get is, should Christians be for or against capital punishment? What do you think, Jeff? Well, and what might surprise some of our readers and listeners who are, you know, somewhat familiar with a New Testament that talks about, you know, love and doing good to our enemies, etc. But the Bible actually endorses the concept of capital punishment or endorses the concept of the death penalty. And in fact, this goes way back, uh, all the way back to the first book in the Bible, uh, Genesis, that even before the law of Moses, uh, that God revealed in Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, that those who shed innocent blood, aka murder, should be punished for their crime, okay, but punished by being put to death, life for life. Uh, and in some ways, the, that, that is to some degree, you know, the essence of justice. I mean, if I, you know, if I'm a farmer and I steal your pig, well, uh, you know, justice would say I need to give, give you a pig back, right? For instance, if I steal your life, again, biblical concept, Genesis 9, life for life. And that this concept was essentially restated under the law of Moses. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Uh, Exodus chapter 21, verse 12. Uh, not only the life for life, but also expanded to cover a variety of crimes within the Jewish nation, within the theocracy that they had. Uh, and again, you can see some of those. Uh, death penalty kinds of crimes in Exodus 21, verses 15, 16, and 17, and verse 29. Leviticus uh, chapter 20, uh, a whole list of 
crimes that are worthy of the uh, death penalty. And of course, likewise, in the Old Testament, we see God using the Jewish nation to punish inhabitants of the land of Canaan uh, for their uh, iniquity. Uh, Genesis 15, verse 16, Leviticus 18, verses 24 through 30. Uh, you know, even within what's sometimes called the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, uh, some people may go to that and say, well, wait a minute, Jeff. Uh, one of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not kill. Now, of course, we would have to understand that verse within the context of the verses that we just got through talking about and recognizing that is thou shalt not kill really in that context means thou shalt not murder uh, that quote unquote if, if any or all occurrences of killing were inherently wrong then we've got hopeless contradiction you know with the rest of the law of moses that says in some cases you need to put criminals to death okay. uh, now we see that not only before the law of moses you know genesis chapter 9 not only do we see it during the law of moses but actually we also see it continued on into the new testament that the legitimacy of the death penalty is further acknowledged as a responsibility of civil government under what we might call the law of christ i mean basically that's what romans chapter 12 verses 17 on into chapter 13 verse 7 is saying that you know individual Christians are not to quote unquote take matters into their own hands, they're not to seek personal revenge, but that it's the responsibility of civil government, responsibility of the state, of the nation, you know, the king, the police force, you know, whatever the case may be, to punish evildoers with, in that context, Romans 13, with the sword. Of course, within Roman times, when that was written, you know, the sword was was not used to like you know slap people, so to speak. You know, it, it was used to inflict death and to inflict execution, and that is a role, a legitimate role, of civil government. Uh, now, I might very quickly want to balance that to a limited degree, with recognizing that it is not an unlimited role uh, with civil government. And maybe what I'm trying to say is, you know, civil government can't just arbitrarily decide they're going to go out and, you know, execute people because of differing political views, for instance. You know, that would not be legitimate. But in terms of punishing evildoers, especially those who've murdered others, uh, serial killers, etc., the Bible does acknowledge that as a legitimate role of civil government. Uh, in fact, if our listeners are interested in getting uh, more information on that topic, uh, you can go under the letter D, where we specifically address, quote-unquote, the death penalty. Brian, back over to you. Yeah, one thought I have on this, you know, it's interesting, in our last podcast, we were talking about euthanasia, you know, physician-assisted suicide, and how that's become more acceptable in our society and, you know, we're also seeing kind of the opposite, really, when it comes to the death penalty, more and more society is against the death penalty. And, and uh, you know, they are calling it murder and those sorts of things when, uh, as you summarize so well, it, it's just punishment for something that, as we look in the Bible, God allowed a life for a life and that sort of thing. So anyhow, regardless of what society does, we know it really is all about what does God's word say. So. Right. You know, that, you know, you raise a good point that, that triggered a thought in my mind. You know, in, in some ways, our modern society is trying not only drifting away from Judeo-Christian, you know, kinds of values, but also drifting more toward, you know, not being held accountable for their behavior. You know, often we say, you know, behavior has consequences, but there seems to be a, a growing movement over the last several decades of, you know, quote unquote, if it feels good, do it. You know, I'm okay. You're okay. Um, that we don't really want to punish people uh, for their behavior. And you see things like plea bargaining. You see criminals that, that have already been convicted, put into prison, you know, being let go early. Uh, in fact, you know, even with the recent uh, COVID uh, pandemic, we've heard, uh, you know, some of the more, you know, liberal state governments that are just releasing prisoners back out on the street. Well, you know, quote unquote, you know, to avoid, you know, COVID within the prison. But, you know, what message does that send? 
that, you know, well, well, we don't really want to hold people accountable for their crimes. Or that, you know, you have to commit, you know, 5, 10, 50, 100 murders, and you're still not given the death penalty. You know, what, you know where's the justice in that? And the answer is, uh, it isn't, right? Yeah, it's and, a head scratcher because there's also, you know, well, they, they, there's justification as to why they committed the crime in the first place. You know, not that they sinned, right? But they had a tough childhood or whatever. So, yeah, it's, it's really one of those that just makes you wonder, like, whoa, where are we going here, you know? Right. And, and because there's no consequences to evil behavior. I can't remember there's a verse either in Proverbs or songs, Psalms about, uh, you know, people just growing worse when there are is no consequence when there is no restraint uh just increasing lawlessness unfortunately yep yep so that, that takes us to the next popular question which is kind of under the topic or under the canopy of what might be called faith only or apostasy and the question typically goes something like this can you lose your salvation you know what about faith only or what about once saved always saved. We get a lot of a lot of questions uh, under that topic. Brian, how would you respond? Yeah, you know, uh, I think where we would want to start is looking at, you know, what is what does faith mean? And if we look at a definition of faith, it, it just kind of means, you know, the complete trust or confidence in someone or something. And, you know, there are other nuances to faith that we could get into, but for the purposes of this question, that's really it. You know, complete trust, confidence in something, uh, someone or something. And so what we'll see, though, if we, when we look at the Bible, is that the Bible clearly teaches that for us to be considered an obedient Christian as God would define it, we must have a working or an active faith. And so when we look at passages like James chapter 2, there's a section there between uh, in verses 14 through 20 where James asks the question, he says, what does it profit, my brethren? Is someone says he has faith, but does not have works. Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He goes on to say in verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? And so, you know, we, we understand when we look in the book of Hebrews that you know, Hebrews chapter 11, for instance, uh, also gives us a really good definition of faith. And so if we look at Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So we believe in God. We don't see him, but we either believe or not believe. But then we ask ourselves, well, is that it? If I just simply say I believe in not only God, but in Jesus is that all that's required? Well, verse 6 in Hebrews 11 kind of helps to answer that for us because it says, Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So to diligently seek something takes work, right? It takes action. So this passage clearly shows it's, it's more than just you know a simple mental ascent. It's more than just believing in God and fully trusting in him. It includes doing what he would like us to. And so, you know, we could go through a lot of passages. I'll invite our listeners on their own to look at Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, where it talks about not leaning on our own understanding, but letting God guide us. And so, anyhow, this passage in James and others make it clear that we have to have a living and active faith to be pleasing to God. So that kind of answers the first part. You know, is is faith only acceptable? And then the second part, uh, as you alluded to, Jeff, that we get uh, frequently question-wise, is once we are saved, are we always saved, and can we lose our salvation? Well, there are many passages in the Bible that teach we can be lost after we are initially saved. And so when we talk about being initially saved, according to the Bible, that means that we are baptized for the remission of our sins, Acts chapter 2 and 38. 
And so I wanted to point that out because, you know, there's also this belief when it comes to faith only that as long as you believe in Jesus, you'll be saved. And sometimes uh, people will go to the Bible and they'll pull out one passage that talks about that we're saved by faith and say, well, there you go. That's it. What they fail to do is look at all of what the scriptures teach. And no doubt it teaches that we must be baptized. And so after we're baptized, no doubt we're cleansed, we're forgiven. We stand pure and justified before God. But the next time that we sin, well, we're in a, a lost state, you might say again, because we have separated ourselves from God by that sin. And we see that in Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2. So then we, we go and we look at passages also that reinforce this idea of being lost or how it's possible for us to lose our salvation. And for instance, Hebrews chapter 3. Verse 12, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, therefore let him who stands take heed lest he fall. So we can fall from grace, no question about it. Now, earlier we looked at uh, James chapter 2, and, and I'd also like to look at 2 Peter 2, Jeff, if I could get you to read verses 20 through 22 for us. Okay. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world to the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. Or it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it, it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and... A sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. So yet another example, as it says here, that that teaches us that we can in fact turn from the holy commandment. We can become again entangled into in the, the worldly things in this life and fall from grace. And so, you know, when you hear this term once saved, always saved, for those of you that may not be familiar with it, it, it just, you know, kind of is what it says. I mean, as far as, you know, some would believe that whether it's faith only or once you're baptized through the grace of God, you can't possibly be lost. Well, th there's nothing further from the truth because, you know, what we see from the scriptures in addition to the ones that we've looked, uh, that we just talked about, is that God is just and he will judge everyone according to their deeds. And so, for instance, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 are told, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So if we could not fall away, if you think about it kind of logically, there would be no need for judgment. If we're once saved, always saved, then what's there to judge? And so, you know, I like Galatians chapter 6, uh, verses 7 and up, uh, 7 and 8. I, I think it sums it up best when it tells us, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. And then the opposite's true, right? He who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And so these are just a few passages. There are other passages that talk about what's going to happen on the judgment day. And, you know, this really, people that believe in faith only or what we might call perseverance of the saints and those sorts of things, uh, are tenets of Calvinism. And we have an upcoming series where we're going to get into the tenets of Calvinism because when you have something like once you're saved, you can't always be saved, that's a, a very, uh, that's one of the tenets of, of Calvinism called perseverance of the saints, which is, you know, simply the belief that those who God supposedly chose to be saved and, you know, he only chose so many to be saved, well, they are also preserved and cannot fall from grace. Uh, so as we just saw, you know, this is not consistent with the scriptures who said that God is just. He will have a just judgment. And so, uh, Jeff, when it comes to that popular category, it's very important to kind of understand these basic principles. Right. And, you know, Brian, sometimes I, I do wonder why some questions tend to be more popular than others. And in this particular case, I sometimes wonder, you know, with a lot of uh, Protestant denominations, that to one degree or another embrace Calvinism and embrace the concept of faith only and one saved, always saved. 
if people, you know, having been taught that and accept that in their local congregation, if they stumble across some of the verses we've mentioned and they that gets them to thinking about, well, now, wait a minute, I thought once saved, always saved. And what about these verses that talk about beware or if you're faithful or take heed, etc. And I don't know, maybe that is the trigger that uh, gets them thinking uh, and sometimes approaching our website with with this question. And as you've alluded to, there are, you know, are a large number of scriptures that talk about, no, it's not faith only, and it's not one saved, always saved. Now, admittedly, we can have some degree of confidence, you know, in God uh, that, you know, he'll do what he promised, you know, to save us, etc. But it's kind of a conditional promise. And, you know, we need to do everything, you know, we can on our part to uphold our our end of it, uh, so to speak. Yeah, and I think that's the key. Uh, you know, something we repeat often on this podcast is that we encourage everyone to dig into the scriptures and see what is taught. Because unfortunately, all too often, people take the word of their pastor or their quote-unquote Christian friend, and they don't actually examine it for themselves. And if we don't examine some of these passages, well, we're likely to believe anything, aren't we? Right, yeah, exactly. And, and I think that also points out uh, the, uh, the value when you're going into the Bible of looking at all of the scriptures, you know, associated with a given topic. And, you know, try to bring them all together, try to properly harmonize, you know, all of them. Because you know, there are some scriptures that, you know, famous ones, you know, John 3.16, you know, believing in Jesus. And some people want to latch on to that to the exclusion of some of these other passages when in reality, you know, a, a, a good student of the Bible would take all the topics about salvation, bring them all together, look at the composite view, and then form the uh, the conclusion or, or a proper interpretation. So, Brian, what's our next question? Yeah, good points. Yeah, so our, the next category that we receive a, a lot of questions on has to do with living together. And so, you know, we'll often get questions that are around, you know, having sex before or outside of marriage. So, you know, for instance, is it wrong to have sex before or outside of marriage. Right. And, you know, it, it's kind of interesting. Earlier, I talked about, you know, I think it was under the death penalty, about uh, especially the United States to, to a high degree, and, you know, the rest of the world to, to a degree as well, drifting away from Judeo-Christian kinds of ethics, so to speak, in our common culture. You know, there was a time, you know, within the history of the United States, as an example, when you would never even hear this question because the answer was obvious it's wrong period <laughs> don't do it uh and yet again with loosening uh, morality with uh loosening uh, constraints on people's behavior allowing people to do what they want to do uh and to some degree not only judeo-christian ethics uh, declining but you know evolution rising where you know basically we're just animals um, and with, you know, instinctual desires and, you know, if you have instinctual desires, just, you know, go ahead and take care of them, uh, with, you know, limited, uh, or, or no constraints. And in fact, Brian, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think if I remember correctly, the, the rate of marriage has been, you know, not only is there is divorce, a lot of divorce rampant, but the rate of marriage has been, you know, dropping quite a bit with most people just saying, Hey, you know, if, if a lot of marriages end in divorce, we'll, we'll just not get married. We'll just live together. And, you know, if, if we want to go our separate ways, no big deal. Mm. Uh, but, simply speaking, if you approach the question from a biblical perspective, it is clearly wrong to have sexual relations either before activity. Um, in older translations, like King James, you may encounter the word fornication, which we often don't use today. Uh, but that particular word occurs over uh, two dozen times uh, in the King James Version. Uh, more modern translations, I think like American Standard or uh, New, uh, New American Standard or maybe NIV, uh, they may refer to sexual immorality or immorality in general. And, you know, some of those terms have you know, some degree of uh, you know, lack of specificity, so to speak. And as I said before, we typically don't use the word fornication. Um, but when you look at the verses where the term is found, 
especially Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, and 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2, you can see that this term, quote-unquote fornication, is a general one. A general one in the sense of uh, encompassing all sexual activity outside of a scriptural marriage. It basically comes from the Greek word pornea, that we have derived our modern word pornography from. So being a general term for all sexual activity uh, outside of marriage, uh, it would certainly include, you know, what we would call consensual sex between boyfriend and girlfriend. But it would also include rape, prostitution, incest, adultery, homosexuality, pedophilia, sex with children, group sex, bigamy, polygamy, bestiality. I mean, you just go on and on. As a general term, it would encompass all of those. And certainly when the Bible condemns something using a general term, all the specific types would be included. So at our website, as I said, since this is a popular question, uh, we have a, a fair amount of material on our website, uh, related questions and answers, short articles, longer articles, etc. Under topics like F for fornication. And yes, we do use the King James term because it is uh, in some ways more precise than quote unquote immorality. A for adultery. Uh, and even topics like D for dating and M for marriage to encompass, you know, the sexual behavior of uh, humanity. Brian, any thoughts before we move forward? Yeah, just one thought, you know, as we have been talking about societal changes, this is just another area, and you kind of alluded to, you know, people being more promiscuous and so forth. And as countries like the one we live in, the United States, are moving more and more towards socialistic principles, and, you know, within socialism are Marxist principles. If you were to if if you dig into Marxism, what you'll see is that the marriage, the institution of marriage is not respected. And in fact, multiple partners is are encouraged. And it really destroys the family completely as God defines it. And so that's kind of the scary part once people start down this path. And of course, I guess at a base level, if you don't respect God and you don't respect his word, then I guess you could say anything goes, right? And, and it's almost natural that it would be going down this road of, well, just do what feels good to you. And as long as it's consensual, it's okay. And, and it's the, kind of scary and sad all at the same time. Yeah, you, you made a good point about, about the family because within the family, at least designed by God, you have a you know, committed uh, husband and wife you know, working together. You have as committed, you know, parent, uh, mother and father, you know, raising children, et cetera, within that context, uh, exclusively, you know, within the family unit. Uh, and of course, you know, the sexual loyalty, so to speak, uh, husband and wife. But yeah, when you look at, again, you know, modern thinking uh, and people that would attack, quote unquote, the nuclear family, you, you may have heard that term. Uh, of you know a typical husband, wife, mother, father, etc., uh, and a, and basically say you know whatever doesn't matter. Um, basically, you, you kind of destroyed you know, kind of the nucleus, if you will, uh, of raising godly children right? to respect marriage, to respect sexual activity, to respect being a faithful husband, wife, uh, even to respect being a faithful you know parent, uh, mother or father, you know single mothers, you know, uh, and all those kinds of uh, situations sometimes cannot be avoided, but it's certainly not ideal. It's certainly not what uh, what God would have in terms of, again, a nuclear kind of family faithfully working together to uh, do what's right. Yeah, it's um, it's one, it's a very sobering subject. I encourage everybody to, to really look into that as well. Uh, so I guess that moves us on to the next one, right, Jeff? Yeah. Uh, and it's related to music, uh, particularly music in uh, church services or music in worship. Uh, a typical question 
in this category would be what kind of music does God want in worship? What about musical instruments and bands? What about choirs in worship? Yeah, so let's tackle these one at a time. For the first question, you know, what kind of music does God want in worship? The short answer is congregational singing. And we know that based on passages like Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16, where we are told, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So singing in our hearts to the Lord. Similar thought over in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, where it tells us to be that we should be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Once again, it says, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And so you see in those two passages, there's no mention of musical instruments. Uh, and it makes it very clear that God wants us to make music with our voice and in our hearts by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And so, uh, you know, one thing that, one principle that's so important to know, and that is when God's word tells us what he wants us to do, it kind of rules, not kind of, it does rule out everything else, like in this case, musical instruments. So God wants congregational singing. Now, some might ask, well, what about musical instruments and bands? And they might even say, you know, it just sounds so good. I mean, how could God be opposed to that? Well, as we touched on, right, it's important to realize that when the Bible tells us what we are to do, and in this case, as we just said, right, sing and make melody in our heart, it rules out everything else. So the same applies to musical instruments. Because musical instruments in worship is not authorized under the law of Christ, or in our Bibles, it's known as the New Testament, right, the New Covenant, uh, it would be a sin to do so. And, you know, one nice thing about the law of Christ is God has specified when it comes to worship exactly what he wants. And you're just not going to see any passages in the New Testament that tell us to use musical instruments. Now, sometimes there's confusion because we see the use of musical instruments in the worship of the Lord under the old law. Or once again, in your Bibles, it would be seen in there as the Old Testament. Um, and as we've touched on, under the law of Christ, there are not those same passages. And so one of the biggest mistakes that we see in the religious world today is they often, religions will often take elements of the old law and apply it. You certainly see that in the Catholic Church and in many others for that matter. Uh, but what's important to realize, Jesus made it very clear that when he came to this earth, it wasn't to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. So as you study the scriptures, what you'll see is that when Jesus died on the cross, the old law became complete. And when you look under the old law, and for instance, Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, God had always promised that there would be a new covenant. Once Jesus came, he, through his death on the cross, ratified the new covenant, if you will, with his blood. And, and you can read Hebrews, it talks a lot about this. And so there was a change in law, there was a change in covenant. So while God was fine, with musical instruments in some contexts under the old law. He is not fine with it being used in worship under the law of Christ because he specifically says that we are to sing and make melody in our hearts. So the final question here is, what about choirs in worship? Once again, boy, a well-organized choir sounds so good. And oh, by the way, not everybody sings really well, so wouldn't it be better just to have a choir stand up there with these great voices? Well, another area where mankind has introduced something in worship that is not authorized or even found in the New Testament. You won't see the word choirs. And so while choirs can be uplifting, sound great, they're just simply not authorized. And so, Jeff, I guess that really is the easiest way to answer these questions, right? It's pretty clear in the scriptures. And right. Uh, and the ones you noted, you know, talk about, you know, speaking and singing. Also to one to another, which would say, you know, as you said, congregational singing, not having a special group singing to the congregation, like choirs or quartets or solos, etc. And, you know, Brian, I think behind all of these is probably a common theme of liking music or wanting to like the music or 
having the music or the instruments or the band or the choir, or whatever, you know, doing it because I like it. It sounds good. But the fundamental problem with that kind of a mindset is worshiping is not really about me. It's about God. That's and it. what God wants and what God likes. And God has specified what he likes. And, you know, I might be able to cut and, and I could easily come up with something I think is better. You know, in, in fact, some of the, you know, larger congregations and community churches and megachurches, you know, they have a very, very extensive, very expensive, very elaborate, very uh, moving, if you will, you know, production with lights and sound and you know, almost orchestral quality and very, you know, highly trained professional singers putting on a really, really big production. And it sounds oh so wonderful. What does God want? Well, as you said, he specified what he wants. Singing one to another and singing and making melody in our hearts to God. It, it, it really is pretty simple. Uh, without a whole lot of other, you know, things added on. And, of course, again, since we want to worship God, we probably want to respect what he wants, right? Yeah, that's such a key point. And, and fortunately, worship has become today all about us. What do we want? What do we like? And as you pointed out, and I really appreciate it, it's about God. We're not there for us. Now, granted, there are passages, as we just read, right, that we do edify and encourage one another, no doubt. But ultimately, it's about God, and no doubt it's what he wants and not what we think or want. Yes, indeed. Well, the next category, uh, not only category of questions that we often get, but also just something that's become really popular, and almost every society around the world are tattoos. I mean, you see them everywhere now. And so it makes sense that we would get questions about, you know, should Christians avoid tattoos? Or, hey, what does the Bible teach about tattoos? Is it okay with the Lord? Those sorts of things, Jeff. What do you think? Right. And, you know, here's an area that, you know, certainly we have some uh, information, guidance, if you will, from the Bible. Uh, and also at the same time, there's kind of a cultural context. And, and the reason why I want to mention that is at least within the United States, you know, it wasn't that long ago where having a tattoo inherently, regardless of what the tattoo was, was a sign of rebellion, was a sign of lawlessness, was a sign of coarseness. You know, sometimes, you know, the, uh, the emphasis was, you know, only really crude people got it. And culturally, it was looked down upon and frowned upon, et cetera. Boy, it sure isn't that way anymore, <laughs> is it, Brian? No, it's so common. <laughs> exactly. Right. It, and, and it is, it has gotten to the point where it is very common. You know, admittedly, just about everyone has one or more. Uh, that some of the designs are very, you know, they used to be very, very crude, ugly, you know, skull, crossbones, whatever. Uh, a lot of the designs today are very benign. Uh, some are, you know, little flowers and hearts and, and, and whatever. Uh, and so culturally, it has shifted. Now, the question is, well, okay, that's important, but more important, what the scriptures have to say. So starting off, and we have to, you know, give, uh, you know, proper balance from a scriptural perspective. Some people indeed will go to... Uh, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 28, where it talks about making marks in your flesh. And they'll say, aha, there it is, forbidden. Right? And yet, as you were alluding to a few moments ago, you know, the law of Moses has been fulfilled. It has been, you know, done away with. We are now under the law of Christ. So you can't, you know, point to a command in the law of Moses and hang your hat on it and, you know, go just based on what it says. That said, you know, is, is there some general principle that Leviticus 19 speaks to that we see perhaps under the law of Christ? And I think there probably is. Uh, first of all, you know, from a you know New Testament perspective, why would someone want to get a tattoo? You know, what is the message? 
that we are sending? What does it stand for? What kind of statement is being made? And contrast that with the kind of statement a Christian should be making. I mean, for instance, as I mentioned before, there are tattoos that glorify death. Uh, there's prison tattoos, rock tattoos, uh, gang tattoos. There's tat there are tattoos that glorify drinking, sex, rebellion, death, violence. There are tattoos that may not be that, which would be wrong, but there are tattoos that are placed in certain parts of the body that draw attention to parts of the body that shouldn't have attention drawn to them. You know, especially, you know, thighs, breasts, etc. Uh, that are designed to attract the eye to places where it shouldn't be attracted. Are these things consistent with Matthew 5 verses 13 through 16 that talk about being a positive example and salt and light to the world? Are they consistent with 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 21 and 22? It talks about abstaining from every form of evil. Uh, what about James chapter 4, verse 4? Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. So bottom line is, you know, if you're getting one, what's the message? What is it saying? Where is it placed? And what are you, you know, what are you saying, you know, through this? That's number one. Number two, uh, and I think we had uh, this mentioned earlier uh, in a, a previous podcast about suicide, you know, taking care of our bodies, taking care of ourselves, trying not to hurt, damage them, uh, harm them, etc. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, you know, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and transformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that which is good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. So, first of all, our bodies are not our own. You know, our bodies belong to God. So, we can't do with them whatever we want to. We can't turn them into inked billboards of whatever thing we want. Uh, so there's that aspect. Uh, there's also kind of an aspect, and I honestly haven't researched this in depth, but the kinds of uh, chemicals that are used in some tattoos, particularly the, uh, the very highly colorful uh, tattoos, you know, there may be some degree of, of danger uh, or uh, uh, potential long-term harm. Um, you know, certain kinds of chemicals. So that's something else we would want to consider. As the verse I just quoted, you know, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, you know, we don't want to be conformed to the thoughts and interests and whims of the world. For instance, well, everyone's getting one. I want one too. Well, hold on a second. <laughs> just because everyone is doing it is, is no, you know, justification for, for us, especially if there's, as we've noted, concerns about the message you know being sent uh we talked about the the importance of the body you know first corinthians chapter 6 verses 12 through 20 uh, again our body is not our own it really belongs to god uh and so a lot of different things we need to consider now some people brian might say well okay okay i i understand i don't want to put these things where they would draw undue sexual attention uh tramp stamps you know those kinds of things um okay i'll tell you what i'm going to get a religious tattoo you know that has you know the name of jesus or it has a cross or it has whatever and you know i will be glorifying god by you know being inked with you know these kinds of religious tattoos now now so it might not be the message you know fall under that um it certainly might be some concern regarding you know, the chemicals that i mentioned earlier um, but there's also the sense, I think, in terms of, you know, religious tattoos, uh, that the scriptures certainly encourage Christians to let their light shine before others, uh, and that the way we think or speak or act or dress or appear should reinforce that, uh, that being a Christian, really, when you boil it down, is defined by 
both what we believe, what we obey, and what we do, and not necessarily by religious symbols. I mean, you know, I know a lot of people are, you know, really into quote-unquote Christian jewelry or Christian ornaments or Christian tattoos, but is it really about the, that physical kind of thing, or is it more about the way we behave and the way we speak and the way we conduct ourselves? I mean, my point is, you know, too many people want to emphasize some kind of external token of Christianity, you know, like a fish decal, you know, on their bumper or a cross worn as jewelry, a small statue of Jesus on their car's dashboard, etc. But they don't really want to follow what the master says, what Jesus says. Now, they might want to, you know, talk the talk or they might want to show the bling, so to speak. Uh, but they don't really want to walk the walk. So, again, religious tattoos, certain danger there as well. Uh, now, a person kind of hearing this who has a tattoo, maybe in a bad spot, or maybe sending the wrong kind of message. You know, what do you do about repentance? You know, if if they come to to that sense, and you know, honestly, repentance would include some kind of attempt to either remove or hide, you know, the offending tattoo. Uh, because of the quote-unquote statement it would continue to make otherwise. So, you know, from a repentance perspective, there's that aspect. And in general, uh, we've got further information at our website under T for Tattoos. Um, Also, I think, uh, if I remember correctly, under E for Ear Piercings, or maybe P for Piercings, because often those go together, uh, you know, tattoos and piercings. Um, Also, P for Peer Pressure which a lot of people you know, will get tattoos because of that, as well as the more general category of C for Christian living. Brian, any other thoughts? Yeah, really good. I appreciate you putting that together because it really nails it. And, you know, one other passage that goes along with exactly what you just said is, you know, First John chapter 2, uh, 15 through 17, and I'll just read 15 where it says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So as you pointed out, Jeff, you know, if we want, if we're, we want to be like the world, if we admire the world, uh, what does that say about us, right? And, and I really appreciate you focusing on that because at the end of the day, we are to be separate and not blending and loving the things that the world does. All right. Good point. Okay. So on to the next general category. Um, and likewise, it, it is uh, fairly popular and it concerns money. More specifically, it concerns tithing. And we get a lot of questions, again, to the website about tithing and, you know, what should be included in the tithing? Should this kind of, uh, you know, income be included? Should that kind of income be included, uh, et cetera? Uh, and in general, one of the, the question is, is often asked, you know, should Christians tithe or should Christians give a fixed percent of their income? Yeah, it's a good question, and I think it's another one where there's just sometimes a little bit of a misunderstanding when the word tithing is used um, about the old law versus the new law that we live under today. And uh, the good news is that many do recognize that they should give back to the Lord, you know, what He has blessed us with. And so when it comes to this word tithing, you know, we, we do not tithe today because that was part of the old law. Now, that's not to say we don't give today, but just focusing on this word tithe that was something that was part of the old law. And as we talked about earlier, you know, when Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled the old law. He brought about the new covenant, which is the law of Christ. And we see that talked about in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15. Now, under the law of Christ, which we live under today, we are commanded to give as we have been prospered on the first day of each week, which is Sunday. Now, that makes sense because we come together on the first day of the week to remember the Lord's death. And we see that in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. Unlike under the old law, they actually worshiped on the Sabbath, which was a Saturday. So now that we come together on the first day of the week to remember Jesus's death and him bringing about this new covenant, uh, it just logically fits the command given by the Holy Spirit through Paul to also, while we're there, to give back to the Lord as we have prospered. And so we see this over in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, where it says, beginning in verse 1, on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. So that's a command that applies to all of us, that we, 
when it says lay something aside as we've prospered. That's just saying, you know, we put some thought into taking a part of what the Lord has blessed us with and giving it back to him. We've already thought about it before we get to worship so that we have already determined what we will give back uh, to the Lord. And we see a, a similar thought in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, where it talks about to give as we have purposed in our heart. So it says here, so let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. So, you know, we, we don't feel like, well, I have to do this. The Bible tells me, or, you know, I just can't afford to give too much. So I'll give something because I know the Lord commanded it. No, no, God loves a cheerful giver. You know, our attitude is, Lord, thank you for blessing me with the talents and abilities that I have that has allowed me to become educated, allowed me to have a job that, that gives me money to live on. I'm more than happy to give back to you to help accomplish your work. Uh, now, when it comes to this question of a fixed percentage, well, no doubt under the old law, uh, the tithe, uh, everything, you know, when you when you had crops and your harvest came in, you were giving a percentage of that as required to the Lord. But under the law of Christ, we don't see a fixed percentage commanded. Uh, and instead, as we just read, we see that we are to give as we have prospered. We have, um, you know, First, First Corinthians sixteen, right? Storing up as we prosper, and then giving as we have purpose in our heart. I should say in Second Corinthians chapter nine. So, you know, when we think about the idea of prospering, no doubt, it, you know, it applies to the wages we earn through the jobs we have. But it could be a bonus that we're given at work. It could be something that we've sold, like a house, a car, you know, something on uh, like an eBay type site. And, and we can prosper in many ways. So it's just saying, you know, we take a portion of that cheerfully. Uh, not some fixed amount, but whatever we feel is appropriate, uh, and we give it back to the Lord. And so, uh, anyhow, hopefully, you know, that helps. Now, one final thing here, Jeff, I'll ask if you wouldn't mind to read this passage for us, and that's in First Chronicles chapter 29. I think David really helps us to understand that, you know, we're simply giving back, as I mentioned a little bit ago, what rightfully belongs to the Lord and, you know, what he has blessed us with. Okay, First Chronicles 29, beginning of verse 13. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. Who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you and of your own we have given you. For we are aliens and pilgrims before you, as were all our fathers. Our days on earth are as a shadow and without hope. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have prepared to build you a house for your holy name is from your hand and is all your own. I know also, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. As for me, in the uprightness of my heart, I have willingly offered all these things. And now with joy, I have seen your people who are present here to offer willingly to you. Yeah, wonderful attitude, right, Jeff? And I think David really helps to summarize what our attitude should be like, right, when we give. Right. Well, and the only thing I, I might just add on is some people look at, you know, the the, the tithe, the 10%, you know, under the law of Moses, uh, and want to latch on to that. But sometimes they forget that that was almost like a very base uh, level, that a foundation, if you will, that above and beyond that, they were expected to give you know, free will offerings. They were expected to offer, you know, animal sacrifices multiple times per year uh, that they were expected to pay eventually what was, I think, became known as the, the temple tax and, you know, a number of other things. So if, if you're thinking the Jews pretty much got away with a 10%, um, no, I've heard some scholars, you know, talk 30%, 40%, even 50%. Um, that you know once it was all kind of aggregated together i think you make the key point you know no no fixed percentage of these days although i know some people may say you know as a general rough rule 10 percent and above eh, etc uh but in terms of the tithe the 10 uh 10 percent um law of moses not law of christ yeah and it's definitely not like one percent or hey whatever pocket change i can grab for as the collections coming by right so well and that's that's a good point on the other end of the spectrum so to speak 
Yep. And, and so, uh, like everybody to consider these principles we have brought up, uh, and these different popular categories. And one thing I failed to mention at the beginning is, you know, to find that popular category, uh, when you're on our homepage, uh, what you're going to want to do is choose the topic section on a traditional web browser. And then you'll see the very first choice in the dropdown is popular. Now, if you're using a mobile browser, uh, you just want to press that three line button and then choose topics. And then you'll see that popular section. So we've covered just a few here. We had a podcast earlier uh, last year. You'll, you'll see where we had a couple on other popular questions, but feel free to take a look and you'll see some more popular questions. Uh, but now we'd like to transition to uh, what we like to do you know, at every podcast, and that is just answer a couple questions uh, in these categories that have been submitted to the website. So Jeff, I will ask you the first one. Okay. And this one comes from Janice, and she writes, my son and girlfriend claim to be very religious. They are Pentecostal living in the same house. They say there's nothing wrong with it since they each have their own bathroom and bedrooms. Now, isn't there a verse in the Bible, she asks, that says... Uh, do not give the appearance of wrongdoing or something to that effect? Yeah, good question. And, you know, from a scriptural perspective, there are indeed a couple of what I might call red flags that such a housing arrangement, uh, you know, raises. You know, I think first and probably foremost is being exposed to temptation, you know, unnecessarily. You know, because, you know, most people, normal, strong, you know, sexual desires, uh, the Bible warns us that fornication is something to flee from, 1 Corinthians 6, uh, verses 18 through 20. It is certainly not something that we should ignore. It's not something that we should see how close we can get to it before, quote-unquote, slipping over the cliff. Uh, it's certainly not something where we would want to live in an, in an environment that invites it. Uh, you know, close relationships, close physical proximity, you know, too often, you know, incite the lust that leads to fornication. Uh, James chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, Galatians 5, verse 6, uh, Matthew 5, verse 27 and 28, 2 Timothy 2, verse 22, etc. Uh, a number of verses that talk about, you know, the lust, etc., that lead to you know, sinful activity, and that even the less themselves, you know, when they're, you know, uh, nurtured, so to speak, uh, is sinful uh, as well. Uh, and, you know, those who say, oh, well, you know, yeah, that's, that's, that's okay. You know, others can, you know, avoid those kinds of situations, but I'm a strong person. I'm a strong Christian. My girlfriend's a strong Christian, or my boyfriend's a strong Christian. Yeah, we can, we can be together, you know, close and you know, have some degree of, you know, physical contact, whatever that may be. And yeah, we can, we can sleep under the same roof, even in separate bedrooms. And yeah, we're strong. We're strong Christians. Well, Brian, honestly, that leads me over to like first Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. that says these things were within the context, the problem the Israelites have. Now, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, this is 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So, bottom line, unnecessary exposure to temptation, flee fornication, stay away from it, don't even go there. Uh, second category would be our example and the life we live in front of others and the influence we have over others. Point being, Christians are to set good examples, let our light shine, etc., to the worldly people around us. As Romans 12, 17 says, provide things honest in the sight of all men. Uh, other scriptures, Matthew 5, verse 13 through 16, Philippians 2, verse 15, 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, that our listeners can uh, look up uh, on their own. Uh, and the kind of example and influence, you know, two unmarried people living in the same house, coming and going every day, being seen by the neighbors, uh, and the kind of example they're setting to, you know, other, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, you know, couples, um, is not a good one. 
And, you know, honestly, when two unmarried people, the opposite sex are living in the same house, you know, I certainly don't need to tell you what's typically happen happening in, you know, 99 plus percent of the time when people are quote unquote living together. In fact, that term living together is often a very common euphemism for, you know, having sex, right? Or, or friends with benefits. I, I've heard that phrase as well. So bottom line is it's, it's not something that faithful Christians should be doing. How's that, Brian? Yeah, that's it. And in fact, I think it's interesting. The question that I you have for me that I answered is similar, right? It's, it's similar, but it goes to show you how, you know, even somebody from the outside looking in can see that there's something probably off about that, right? Somebody justifying it. So, so how about that question for me, Jeff? Okay. So this came in from uh, an anonymous uh, person. And I might just quickly add as a side comment, that when you do use the ask a question feature on our website to submit a question, if you want to give us your first name, that's fine. If you don't, that's fine too. And some people choose not to. And honestly, some of these questions are really uh, sensitive and a person may not want to have their name known. And that's perfectly fine. Of course, we do have to have your email because we have to you know, relay a, an answer back to you. Uh, but this anonymous person said, my roommate who professes to be a Christian is dating the landlord and lives in the same room and sleeps in the same bed as her, but they are not married. I don't know if they have sexual union, but he sees no problem with this. I told him that the Bible says to get married first. I read an article that said it's okay for a man and woman to live in the same house, just don't have sexual union, which we kind of just got through addressing. My question is, can they live together as long as they're not having sex? <laughs> My understanding is this is biblically wrong. There you go, Brian. Yeah, and I, the answer is almost identical to yours. And, you know, there's a couple of things here. I mean, you, we talked about First Thessalonians chapter 5, 22, or you mentioned it. And, you know, I, I certainly commend whomever it was that submitted this question for questioning this type of arrangement and in actually telling the, you know, the person, you should be married first because that's exactly right. And so, you know, at a minimum, once again, as you pointed out, they, they're giving an appearance of evil. And, you know, we are taught, First Thessalonians 5.22, abstain from all appearances of evil. And, you know, if you think about somebody sleeping in the same bed, much like you said, Jeff, it seems a, a bit unbelievable, right? That whether they're in the same bed or they're dating and they have separate rooms or they're just living in the same place, that you could be dating and sleeping, but yet show no affection, not have any sexual contact, that doesn't make sense, right? And right. as you also pointed out, you know, natural desires God has given us when a man and woman who love each other are in close contact. I mean, it leads to the natural type of emotions that God made for the marriage. And, you know, I think that's the biggest tragedy when it comes to like when you were talking earlier, Jeff, about fornication and everybody being so loose when it comes to sexual relationships god made that special relationship for marriage and to sully it or to cheapen it by having contact like that with boyfriends girlfriends and so forth uh is just sad because you know the relationships in the bible center on marriage and the concept of a boyfriend and girlfriend in general is really a man-made idea you don't read about boyfriend and girlfriend relationships in the bible it just doesn't talk about that now there's courting and things like that, you might say. And, and we're also not saying that, you know, dating or getting to know someone else uh, is wrong. In fact, you need to get to know uh, somebody um, who you would plan on marrying. But, but beyond sex, if you think about having a boyfriend, girlfriend, you snuggle up, you hug each other, you kiss. Hmm. We don't find that authorized in Scripture. In fact, it would be unwise to allow yourself, once again, to be passionately kissing somebody, let's say, and not expect natural desires to be present. And so, you know, Bible makes it clear, any intimate relationships are reserved for marriage. And when you look at the boyfriend-girlfriend relationship, the problem with that type of relationship is, once again, that it's easy to lead to sexual immorality. And that's why we see passages like, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 2, where we're told, Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, 
and let each woman have her own husband. That's God's design. So uh, commend the person who submitted this question for calling out, if you will, or bringing up uh, the inappropriateness of this type of relationship. Um, and, and the Bible does make it pretty clear what the answer should be. Yeah, good points. You know, I'm, I'm reminded a little bit, and it, it is a little bit extreme, but I'll mention it anyway, of uh, the, you mentioned the boyfriend, girlfriend. You know, you, sometimes you hear like young people, and when I say young, I mean like really young. I mean like 13, 10, whatever. You know, talk about having, you know, boyfriends and girlfriends because it's the popular thing to have, and they're, you know, holding hand, whatever, you know, and starting to provoke emotions and feelings and lusts that they scripturally cannot fulfill for many, many years into the future within a marriage relationship. And of course, you know, there, there's danger in, in that kind of situation uh, as well. Like, you know, starting, starting, you know, really young to think, oh, I need to have a boyfriend. I need to have a girlfriend. You know, we need to spend all our time together. How old are you? 10. It's like, yeah. Well, to take that a step further, you know, to me, what's really scary is parents who allow their children to dress in such a way that draws attention, much like you mentioned with tattoos. It might just be a modest dress, right? Short shorts, uh, you know, tops that expose too much. And they don't connect the dots, if you will, saying, well, you know, you shouldn't be looking at a woman that way. Well, hold on a second. You shouldn't be allowing your child to dress in such a way that causes other to others to desire them and then to you know allow them into a boyfriend girlfriend relationship especially at a young age and then be shocked when you have an unwanted pregnancy or you have something that goes wrong i mean parents we have to be we have to, we have to be responsible about those things so oh also good points good points as well so as we kind of start to wrap up this particular podcast uh, as always, we like to direct our listeners back to the website. We do have on the homepage, if you're on a, a normal um, uh, computer, with a, a menu item, a menu bar across the top of the page with the word topics. Uh, if you're on a mobile, I think it's like three bars on the left side, typically, that you can click on to get to topics uh, that are alphabetical in nature. And we've covered a lot of topics today, Brian. Uh, so don't be surprised if you can find information under, for instance, D for death penalty, A for apostasy, which would include your once saved, always saved, faith only, F for fornication, M for music, since we talked about that as well, T for tattoos, T for tithing, uh, and as Brian was alluding to in general, uh, under the topics choice, uh, popular. Uh, to include a you know large number of other very popular topics like you know where did Cain get his wife and what about the sons of God in uh, the early books of uh, Genesis and many many uh, other popular topics that we would encourage people to take advantage of. Brian, I'll throw it to you to wrap us up for the day. Yeah, and if uh, for some reason you don't see a question that we've already answered for the subject that you're looking for, feel free to use that ask a question button on the site. And we'll be happy to uh, get you a biblical answer back within a few days. So thank you for listening, and we appreciate your support uh, of this podcast. We encourage you to share these principles from God's Word with those that you know and love, and certainly encourage you to dive in as well and make application in your lives. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website at biblequestions.org, where you can find over a thousand scripture-filled articles on a wide variety of Bible topics, along with about two dozen free Bible study lessons and other Bible study aids. Plus, you can submit a Bible question to us to get a personal response within a couple of days. Check it all out at biblequestions.org.